there are times when life upsets us. Things don't go our way, and when in many ways it looks like the righteous are always suffering and the wicked are prospering. When we begin to believe the spin that the world puts on what's valuable and what's important and what success is, and we don't look at God's Word and see what that is. And if we buy the lies of the world, we will get upset and we'll begin to think that life is unfair and that we didn't get our due or our just rewards. That easily happens to us today. It also happened at the time that the psalmist wrote Psalm 37. Now, if somewhere around Psalm 37, you would write two little notes at the top, Job chapter 38 through 42 and Psalm 73, because you should always read Psalm 37 along with Psalm 73 and the end of the book of Job, because it tells us about life and viewing it from God's perspective. Now, what I want to give you today, Bill O'Reilly would call the no-spin zone. There's no spin here. This is just truth. This is what God says we are supposed to do and how the godly are supposed to react when it seems like people in the world are getting away with everything and we're suffering in the middle of this world. So he begins in Psalm 37 with, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. For He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently on Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of a man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Now I want to ask you to turn to hold your place in Psalm 37 and turn to Psalm 73 because we're going to see the psalmist in Psalm 73 saying the same thing in a different way. He's looking around and he sees people getting rich and wealthy and success and, and they're not honoring God and he says, you know, I, I don't know why this is happening. Why is God allowing this? If God is just and if God is right and if God is fair, why are these things going on? He says in verse 2, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Now drop down to verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight, and circle the next word, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. God always has an until. What may not look like it's being made right now will be made right at some point down the road. And until then, we have to have God's perspective on how He works. Now, th this is important because if you don't, you're viewing time without thinking about eternity. And time and eternity will all run toward a seamless path at some point when God says, I'm going to make everything right. I'm going to do everything right. There's going to come a day when I'm going to set the record straight and when right will be right and wrong will be judged as wrong and the wicked will perish and the righteous will prosper. God says that day is coming when He's going to balance the books. I'm convinced, like Ron Dunn said, that none of us will ever stand before God and say to Him, you owe me. Now we do that to other people. You know, you owe me. You owe me this. You owe me that. We'll never stand before God and say, you owe me. Because God is no man's debtor. When we get before Him, we will find out that He has been right and just and true in all His judgments and in His patience and in His kindness. Now there's a the thing that you need to understand when you read some of these psalms because as we talked about last week, David got angry and he, he shared his anger. You have to read those in the context and in their historical setting. And you always have to ask the question, especially when you're reading in the Old Testament, is this truth further developed in the New Testament? It is what we call progressive revelation. Now some people have misinterpreted progressive revelation to say that God reveals in 2003 just like He revealed to them. That's not true. God closed His revelation with the book of Revelation and has given us everything we need to know about life and living contained within the book we call the Bible. He's not adding something new. There's no additional truth. There's no new truth. In fact, if it's new, it's not true, which would eliminate a lot of ministries today. Because we're always coming up with something new. We're always coming, and you always have to ask yourself, when somebody says, God told me to tell you, or the Holy Spirit revealed to me, you always have to ask, where did God confirm that in His Word? Where is that truth taught throughout the Word of God? Now here's what progressive revelation means. It means it is a truth that is introduced in an early book in the Bible, but developed and expanded in a later book in the Bible. For instance, the just shall live by faith, or it was reckoned under Abraham as righteousness. That was a truth that was begun in Genesis, but we don't fully understand it until we get to the book of Romans. It was developed in Habakkuk a little further, but in Romans we begin to understand that we walk and live and have our being in the realm of faith. The same is true about salvation. There had to be a sacrifice. There had to be a substitute. 
for salvation. And we understand the substitutional lamb and the sinless lamb that was slain in the process by the Jews. But there came a lamb slain before the foundation of the earth, the sinless Son of God, the once-for-all substitute, wiping out all need for any other sacrifices. It's fully developed later on. You find that in, in the principle of what happens after death. In, in the Old Testament, we don't really get a picture of what happens after death, but we get it when we read the New Testament, particularly the epistles. What heaven is like is fully developed more so for our understanding in the New Testament. Now, where that is true, there is also a principle that is true, that sometimes an Old Testament passage explains something in the New Testament. Let me give you a for instance. Psalm 37 and verse 11. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Now Jesus picked up on that in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They're saying the same thing. But what the psalmist does in Psalm 73 and Psalm 37, and in Job, it tells us how God to His glory and God in His wisdom is going to work all of this out. Jesus just makes a statement. You go back and you read what God said in Psalm 37, what God said in Psalm 73, what He says at the end of Job, and you find out that this thought is developed, and Jesus is just giving us a snapshot. They are giving us the whole role to let us know what a humble person looks like and what God does to those who are meek and humble, what He does for them. The reason He does that is to tell us, it may look like nice guys finish last right now, but you haven't heard the last. God is going to get it all straightened out. He's going to work it out, and we will inherit the earth, He says. Now, here's the perspective. Look down at verse 25. The psalmist has been around the block. He knows this because he's seasoned enough to know it. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging for bread. I've told you the story before about sitting with Vance Havner in, in his apartment a few months before he died, and we were talking, and, and I was talking too much. And he put his hand on my arm and he said, Now, son... I've been young, and I've been old, and you've just been young. So why don't you listen to me for a while? You know, there are things that time develops in you. You know that? You know, my, my parents were dumb as dirt when I was in middle school. They were brilliant by the time I got out of college. I don't know how they grew so much in such a short time, but they just became brilliant. And they're smarter now than they were when I thought they were smart. Even though they're dead, I look back and say, you know, they made some smart decisions there. I didn't see them at the time. And sometimes we just get to going and we think, well, you know, God owes me this and God should do this and God should... If God were God, He would step in and He would do something about this. You know what we're speaking like? We're speaking like the young who don't have enough experience and enough battles and enough scars to understand... God's doing exactly what He wants to do. And He's in charge. And He's in control. And nothing is spinning outside of His control. 
So I want you to look at the characteristics of the ungodly in verses 1 and 2. And, and every verse in this psalm is a gold mine, but we're going to hit some highlights. He calls them evildoers and wrongdoers. Now those two words are a mouthful because they tell us who they are and what they do. They're evildoers and they do wrong. They not only think wrong, they do wrong. And, it, and at first it seems like they're getting away with it. I mean, man, you watch... MTV and you watch VH1 and you watch the old shows like Lifestyle of Rich and Famous and you say, man, they're just getting away with everything. No, they're not. No, they're not. Frank Sinatra was buried with a pack of camels in his, in his, in his uh, coat pocket, a bottle of scotch, and a roll of dimes so he could make a phone call. Frank Sinatra can't make a phone call from where he is. And if he did, nobody's going to answer because he's in the pit of hell today. Jimi Hendrix didn't get away with anything. Janis Joplin didn't get away with anything. These, they don't get away with anything. They have a season and a moment, and that's it. And then there's eternal damnation and punishment in hell for rejecting Jesus Christ. Don't tell me that this side over here wins, because they don't. They don't. Because if they do, then everything in this book is a lie. And if we bind to the lie that to have and to get and to take is what life is all about, then we really don't believe this book. They're evildoers, they're wrongdoers. The question is not so much for us, why do the righteous suffer, but why do the wicked prosper? Why do we ask that question? Because the only world we're looking at is this one. The only world we're thinking about is this one right now. And so we see somebody that's got something that we want and we become envious of them and we fret about it and we worry, boy, I wonder how I could get that. If I could just manipulate some things, if I could just get this, if I could talk my boss into doing this, if I could have this, I could get that same stuff. And that's exactly what you'd have. Stuff. Stuff that burns up in a moment. Stuff that can be taken away. Stuff that can be gone and he says, do not fret. Now, I love this word in the Hebrew. The word means literally, don't get heated. Don't work yourself up into a lather. Don't get frenzied. Don't fret. Don't get worked up. Don't get uptight. The warning is not directed at righteous anger against sin. It is directed at getting a discontented spirit and a spirit of bitterness that the world has something that we don't have. Because that's all the world's going to get is what they've got right now. We get something down the road. And I'd rather get mine in heaven than get mine now. Because in heaven it's going to be for eternity. Now, I just keep having to fix it and to repair it and to replace it. I'm not going to have to fix and repair and replace when I get there. So I have to get this perspective. Proverbs 23, 17 says, Don't let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Proverbs 24, 1, Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. Proverbs 24, 19, Do not fret because of evildoers, or be envious of the wicked, for there will be no future. For the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Now, if you want to write down Proverbs 24 20, the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Let me give you the cat translation of that. The cat translation is one day God's going to say, Turn out the lights, the party's over. 
There's going to come a day when God's going to say, you've done all you're going to do. This world has sinned all it's going to sin. It's been evil all it's going to be evil. And he's going to come back and he's going to wipe out and he's going to clean up and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. God says, I'm going to get the last word. You're not going to get it. I'm going to have the last word on this. And so he says, don't be envious of these people because God's going to pull the plug on them. Look at verse 14. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cut down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Verse 21. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. By that you could write Martha Stewart. Enron. Worldcom and people who have made hundreds of millions of dollars at the average man's expense. You look at your portfolio and you say, man, I've lost money. You know why you've lost money in your portfolio? Not because you shouldn't invest in the stock market. I'll tell you why you've lost money. Because wicked men, greedy, selfish, conniving men and women have manipulated their businesses at your expense. Don't get mad at God. Don't get mad at the government. Don't get mad at Alan Greenspan and economic policy. Get mad at the evildoers who caused it to tank out because they were evil in their nature. Now, they may wear $2,000 suits and drive in limousines, but they're evil in their nature. And some of them will walk off. They'll just get a good lawyer. And they'll walk away, get a hand slap, and they'll walk away. And they're still going to live in their multi-million dollar homes, and they're going to drive their expensive cars and fly their planes. But God says there's going to come a day when I'm going to set all that straight. Don't get uptight about it. Because you see, it seems today that the only wrong thing to do is to be unapologetic for Jesus Christ. The only politically incorrect thing to do is to speak the truth in love. The only wrong thing in our society is to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, I stand for Him, I live for Him, and I'm unapologetic that He's the only way to get to heaven. And His is the only abundant life that is really an abundant life. And that's become the wrong thing to say. But I would submit to you it's still the right thing to say. Because in verse 2... The psalmist says, they will wither quickly and fade. Not only does he say, don't fret, don't get heated up, but he says, I was envious in chapter 73 and verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant, verse 31 of Psalm 37, do not be envious. The word means to glow and to become red. Don't, don't be heated up. Don't get yourself in a lather. Also, don't be envious. Don't become red. Don't let your anger turn to wrath. Don't start trying to fight the world. Live such a life that the world sees a difference. He's saying you rest. When, when you want to get worked up and you want to get envious and you want to get angry and, and all lathered up about that life's not fair to you, just rest in the Lord. Just wait patiently on Him. I'd make three suggestions here. Number one, look beyond the physical. Number two, look beneath the surface. And number three, look above your circumstances. Look beyond the physical, beneath the surface, and above your circumstances. And get God's perspective on how all this is going to work out. 
Now, the second thing he says, he says there's a confidence of the godly in the response of faith. And look at these positive exhortations. Trust, do good, delight, commit, rest, and wait. And notice that all of them are in the context of in the Lord. Not trust in yourself, trust in the Lord. Do good, delight in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord, rest in the Lord, wait patiently on the Lord. What is he telling us to do? He's telling us to do two things. Have faith and be patient. Have faith and be patient. Don't waver. Don't let your knees buckle. Don't get uptight. Don't get pushed off balance. Have faith and be patient. Now, trust and do good. The word trust is a word of faith. Faith, we don't have a verb form of faith in the English language, but there is a verb form in the Greek, and, and faith is an active word. It's not a passive word. Faith is an active word. He says we are to trust and do good. Why? Because faith without works is dead. How do I show people that I'm trusting? I do good. People can't see my faith, but they can see my works. And so I show my trust by doing good. This is God's economy, trust and do. It's not you do, and then that makes you trust. It is being and then doing. Our works follow our faith. Our faith doesn't follow our works. And so God has given us an exhortation here. He says to trust and do good. Then he says, delight yourself in the Lord. Boy, it's easy to delight in other things, isn't it? New car smell. Ah, 0% interest for 60 months. Boy, about month 34, that car starts smelling bad. That body design has changed. And they say, well, sir, you're upside down in that car. Oh, yeah. Couch wears out, refrigerator wears out, floors need replacing, roof needs replacing, yard needs work done on it. Always something. Anybody ever see that old movie, The Money Pit? I don't care what kind of house you got, eventually that's what it is. Because the more you do, the more you have to do. You replace this, and then the next thing looks bad. Now you got to go replace that, and then you got to replace that. You got to put why? Why you got to do that? Well, because the the furniture store truck was next door just yesterday, and if they don't see a truck at our house today, we're going to be behind. And after all, we can buy it and not make any payments until 2005. Now you're paying new payments on something you're tired of. The logic of this world is so moronic, and yet we buy it every day and get ourselves in bondage because we're trying to keep up with the Joneses, and we don't even like the Joneses. But we want to keep up with them. Rejoice in the Lord. The evidence of trust is delight. We delight in a Lord who is gracious and kind and loving and giving and gives us everything we need, maybe not everything we want. Commit and trust. Commit your way to the Lord. When you trust and when you delight, then the obvious result is a willingness to commit to Him the things that upset you. Now, we'd rather talk to other people about the things that upset us, but if we trust and delight, then we should commit. That word is to roll one's way 
on to the Lord. The Septuagint translates it this way, reveal your way to the, to the Lord. Tell him what you're thinking. Tell him how you feel. Casting all your anxieties upon him, Peter says, because he cares for you. And then he says, be patient. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently on him. I wish he hadn't said that. I don't like to rest. I don't like to wait. And I certainly don't like to be patient. I, I'm amazed. I, I just, man, I've been in Albany almost 14 years. I'm amazed. You know, you, you get up here at the light at Whispering Pines and Dawson Road. And there are eight cars backed up at 5 o'clock. And there are people so stressed out. I mean, you just sit by them, especially if you're in one of, one of the turn lanes. You just, they're, just, they're, they're about to bite the head off of a bat. There are seven cars. I'm going to have to wait for another light. Move to Atlanta. <laughs> and then come back and let us tell you how you can be quiet about that. Have one fender bender on I-75 and then gripe about the light at Dawson and Whispering Pines. Oh, we hate to rest. We hate to wait. And I'm, I'm not going here. There are three people in the fast food line. I'm going to go somewhere else. So we'll drive eight minutes to another one, and there are three people in that one. And I don't care what you do, folks. God's trying to teach you patience. That's why whatever line you get in in the bank is the wrong one. He's trying to get you to be patient. Just wait. Just chill out. Memorize a verse in the Bible. Pray for your family. Don't be uptight. Just be glad you got money to put in the bank. Just be glad you've got an appetite and you can go get something to eat. Rejoice in the Lord. Wait patiently on Him. Rest on Him. The, the, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is easy, and learn from me. Come, take, learn. We don't want to do that. Come to me. Take my yoke, learn from me, rest, wait patiently on God. And I want to tell you that is the hardest thing to do in our culture. Can I tell you how to rest? Go to work. Just go about your business. Because when you're just going about your business, you're saying to God, God, I'm trusting you that you're going to work all this out. So I'm not going to sit here and bite my nails. I'm not going to run around in a frenzy. I'm not going to be panicked. I'm not going to get uptight. I'm just going to get up and I'm going to go to work and I'm going to carry out my responsibilities and I'm going to wait on you because in due time you're going to work all this out. You wait by working. Now, obviously, you wait by sitting in the presence of God and listening to Him, but you also wait by going to work. When you get up and you do what you're supposed to do every day, what you're saying is, as an act of obedience and as an act of faith, I know that God's going to work all things out, so I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do today, and I'm going to trust the results to God. Now, there's one last thing, the conquest of the flesh that God requires. The conquest of the flesh that God requires. And this is my fear that we, we haven't learned this and so we come up with more schemes and more plans and we don't know how to just trust God. But listen, either God's got it right or we've got it right. I would submit to you that God's got it right and we've got it wrong. And we have to unlearn some things so that we can get it right. 
Don't get upset with the wicked. They're not in an enviable position. Turn, if you would, to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. Chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived, verse 7. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Now, I want you to go back and look at two phrases. The one who sows to his own flesh... That's the person who lives, eats, breathes, acts, plans, spends for himself. He says he's going to reap what he's sown. The one who sows to the Spirit that gives his life, his thoughts, his plans, his energies, his resources to the kingdom of God. You see, one is heavenly minded and one is earthly minded. One is laying up treasures in heaven where moth nor dust can decay and destroy, but the other one has got treasures on earth that can be destroyed, that can be hurt, that can be stolen, that can be taken away. And what the psalmist is trying to say in Psalm 37, in Psalm 73, what Job, the book of Job tries to tell us, what Paul is trying to teach us is, when you invest your life in things that are eternal, God rewards it in ways that are measurable. Maybe not now, which is what the prosperity gospel would say. But ultimately, you'll get it. I was in a meeting a few weeks ago, and there happened to be a pastor in this meeting who is one of the prosperity gospel preachers. He's on every religious television very successful. He makes millions and millions of dollars. And I was there and I looked at his suit and I could tell immediately I could take every suit in my closet and it wouldn't cost as much as what his suit cost. You see, I go buy a suit off a rack on sale. His are tailor-made and they cost about $4,000 a piece. But he needs your money every month so he can stay on the air. And I was sitting as far from here to Key from him. And I thought, that's okay. You wear your suit now. My goal is to wear clothing of righteousness when I get to heaven. I don't want to be dressed in what this world says is success and get to heaven and find out it's nothing. I'd rather wait and get it there. 
Because that's where it matters. That's where it matters. That's what really counts. And so I walked out and I said, man, nice suit. They couldn't find one that good to bury me in. Nice suit. But you know, all he's got to do is catch one nail on a door and it's gone. Oh man, nice car. All it takes is somebody in the Walmart parking lot to go BAM with their door and you got a little hole in the side of it. And all of a sudden, $90,000 has got a dent in it. And it doesn't look new anymore. And you get one of those things to pop it out and it cracks the paint. <laughs> now you got to go to a body shop. And you drive up to a body shop in a $90,000 car, brother, and they see you coming. <laughs> That's going to cost $47,000 to fix that door. <laughs> what is he trying to say to us? Build your life on what matters. I grew up on the coast. We, we had what we called a beach. It wasn't much of a beach. It was just a place where the hurricanes could come through. <laughs> but when I was little, my, my mom would take me down to the beach and, and I would build sandcastles on the beach. You know, the best way to build a sandcastle is get as close to the water as you can so that the sand is moist and it's wet and you can kind of pack it together. And we'd build walls and we'd take toy soldiers down there and we'd put them on the walls to defend the castle and we'd bring little cannons and everything. We'd put all this stuff around there. Build a little castle, build a little fortress. Go down there the next day, my castle was gone. The tide had come in. And in the tide coming in, it sucked my castle out into the water. And all that I had worked for, and all that I had schemed and planned and dreamed and fantasized about, was gone. I had every intention of it being there the next day, but it wasn't. It was gone. And folks, evildoers are building sandcastles. One day they'll be gone. But our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed. Evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. Folks, that's God's Word. We don't have to be jealous of those who have more. We should be content in whatever state that we're in. And it's very easy for us, very easy for us to get into the wants. I want this, I want that, I deserve this, I deserve that.